Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Well, the name is Ronald James Reed. My service number was 402821. I was, ended up warrant officer. Being in, in a Japanese prison camp, we couldn't be commissioned. I ended up being a warrant officer, which wasn't too bad because it was fairly highly paid. Mm. Okay. And you're known as Ron? Yes. Yep. Mm. And uh, what? Uh, What's your date of birth and where were you born? I was born in Wellington um, and my date of birth is the 30th of January 1918. Mm. And you grew up in Wellington? Grew up in Wellington, educated in Wellington and uh, and I, uh, when I retired um, I came up here when I was about 65. Right. Mm. And what sort of, um, what, what was the the basis of you getting into the Air Force, were you always sort of interested in aircraft? Yes, well Brian Baber, my very close friend, Brian Baber's brother was a, an air gunner in England at the time. Uh, he was, uh, I think he became an officer and ended up instructing and uh, was put off flying because he'd done his two tours of operations. But when he came back from Canada he wanted to go out on one more operation, and he went out and never came back. That was Brian Baber's brother. But uh, we had joined up by then, and uh, we joined up as air gunners, but when we went through Levin, we were remustered as airman pilots. And we ended up uh, flying. Brian couldn't even drive a motor car at that stage. <laughs> It must be unusual to want to be an air gunner and then find out you're going to be a pilot. Yes, absolutely. We never thought we'd ever be a pilot. No. no. <laughs> so, at Levin, you're, you're training to be an air gunner. You become a, uh, remustered to be a pilot. Yes. And, and where do you go from there? We went to New Plymouth. I did 50 hours on Tiger Moths. And then uh, we did uh, 100 hours down at Ohakia. Uh, on Hawker Hines. Can you tell me about your first flight then? First? First flight? Oh, the first flight. Um, quite exciting really when you're up in the air and uh, you're in a little tiger moth and the um, uh, everything responds so quickly and uh, the, the instructor's in the back 
And uh, the most exciting time, of course, is when you've done about eight or nine or ten hours and the instructor gets out and takes his stick with him and says, right, you're going solo. That's the most exciting time. You have to do three good, three good landings before they let you go solo. Hmm. And, and you had a nice smooth solo then? Yes, I, yes, I did uh, fairly well, yeah. Mm. And who was your instructor? I can't remember his name. We had several instructors going right through. Mm. Okay. Mm. And, and so then you progressed onto the Hawker Hind? Uh, yeah, we went down to Ohaki and we did uh, uh, 100 hours down there, 50 hours at ATS and advanced training, uh, intermediate and advanced. Then mm. from there we went on final leave and ended up going to Singapore. Okay, well can you just tell me about the hind, what was that like to fly? Uh, very awkward to land, they had a very narrow undercarriage and poor brakes. Very, they had trouble with the brakes all the time. Um, but other than that they were a very nice aircraft to fly. Um, uh, shaped a bit like a hurricane in some ways. Hawker Hurricane was Hawker Hind, uh, built by the same people. If you took the top wing off, it looked a bit like a hurricane, actually, but not as powerful, of course, or as modern. And did you do things like gunnery and bombing? Yes, we did uh, air-to-ground uh, and air-to-air. Uh, -air. They, dra uh, they dragged a, togue be a, a, a drogue behind a, a Wildebeest or a Vincent, and we had to come in behind and shoot the drogue. And I think they had the, the bullets painted so you could see whether you hit the drogue or not. Hmm. Must have been quite exciting and, and fun. Uh, it was really. For us when we were young, I was 22 and I think Brian was 21. Hmm. Hmm. It was very exciting. Hmm. And so at the end of that hind course, is that when you found out you were going to Singapore? Uh, we didn't know until we'd finished where we were going, but that, yes, then, then, then they told us that uh, we're, we were going to Singapore. That's, that stage, Singapore was quite good. So as it went to Salita, it was the main base there. Uh, there were Catalina flying boats at Salita. It was a very big base, very big base, Salita. Hmm. Okay. Uh, did you go up by ship to Singapore? Yes, yes. Uh, a, a boat called the, uh, oh, the Joan van Olden Barneveld, a Dutch vessel. We went to Perth, Fremantle, and from there I went in a smaller boat called the SEAC uh, to Singapore. Hmm. And you were quite excited to go up there then? Yes, they, they, people in Australia gave us a very good time in Fremantle and Perth. They, they, they treated us very, very well. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And, and so when you got to Salita, you thought you were going on to fight us? Uh, no, I, I went, we, we, we didn't go straight to Salita. We, we went up to a place called Kluang and did a conversion on Wirraways uh, to go on fighters, uh, to prepare ourselves for fighters. Well, I did my course on Wirraways and I went down to the fighter squadron, but they said, the, the uh, flight commander said, we can't take it, we've got too many pilots. And I was transferred then to uh, 36 squadron. Right. Hmm. In hindsight, do you think that was a good move to get away from the buffaloes? Well, I wouldn't be sitting here now if I'd gone onto, onto buffaloes because the very few survived on the buffaloes. They were a very inefficient fighter compared with the Zero. The Zero flew circles around the buffalo. Hmm. Even the Hurricane was no good until it got to about 
20,000 feet, and then superior to the uh, uh, to the zero. But under 20,000 feet, the zero could fly circles around the hurricane. Hmm. Okay. Uh, do you remember which squadron it was that you went to with the buffaloes and they turned you down? A 488. Oh, right. Yeah, 488. Pilots that came through after me ended up going there because they had nowhere to send them, so they just kept them there. But that, that a lot of them didn't like Brian Baber didn't fly, and he didn't go operational. There's quite a few of them that didn't go operational, but we lost an awful lot of men on the buffaloes. Some very nice chaps we lost on the buffaloes. Mm. And so, how did you feel about going on to the the wildebeest then? Uh, uh, I took it in its stride, really. I had a very good man over um, training me, Warrant Officer Peck, an Englishman. Uh, he, he taught me uh, torpedo dropping and, and generally uh, all, all the things I had to learn there. George Peck took me under his arm and... Uh, so we flying as a mixed squadron with Vildebeest and the albacores that you... Uh, we only had the albacore at the very finish. Uh, we. We we um, we used the albacore to get out of Singapore. Uh, if I hadn't have had that, I don't know how we would have got out. Probably on a s small boat or something. But we uh, we 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 had the albacores, two albacores. George Peck had one, and I had the other with our crew, and we flew down to Java. Hmm. Okay. So, could, just on the actual Singapore part, could you tell me a little bit about? Um, about the airfield that you were based at and... Um... Yes, Salita was a circular airfield and it had a shape like a saucer upside down. Um, we were going to be equipped with Beaufort bombers from Australia, but they found the airfield was too small for them to land. There was no airfield in, uh, big enough for them to land in Singapore, so they, they, they went back. Um, we, we couldn't use the Beaufort bombers. But they were going to equip, equip us with Beaufort bombers. But I don't think that they would have been a success, really. The, the Zeros would have shot them down anyway. Uh, while we were night bombing, we had no problems because we never struck any opposition from the Japs at night time. I don't think they could fly at night because they never ever seemed to fly at night. But they sent us out, Air Command sent us out on a daylight raid right at the end, two squadrons and we lost an awful lot of men, both our COs and um, uh, an, an awful lot of men. It was a terrible, complete disaster. They apologised. They came and apologised to us for sending us out. They should never have sent Vildebeest out on a daylight raid. Mm -hmm. And that was raiding ships? There were two, uh, two ships that were uh, uh, just off the shore from a place called um, Endow. The Japs land, were landing at Endow, it was fairly close to Singapore, uh, but the ships had, they'd landed, it was just a waste of time of us going out there, they'd landed. I, I, when I got there, I was right at the end, I, I went out with a 100 squadron, the 336 squadron pilots went out with a 100 squadron, and I was right at the back of the box as we flew out, and when I got there, there were that many aircraft seemed to be flying around and diving down. I held back in a cloud, and whilst I was in that cloud flying around, a Lockheed Hudson went straight across in front of me, followed by a Jap fighter, 
and uh, and then when it cleared, uh, just before it cleared, a Jap attacked us, but the bullets went over the top of us. I turned around and tried to use my front gun, but I had a double feed and it wouldn't work. Um, uh, then I went down and dropped my bomb and came back and then I, I, I flew back to base. I was probably the last one to get back. All, all the aircraft had disappeared when I, I dropped when I took I dropped my bomb off. I, all the aircraft had disappeared. Hmm. Okay, so which was the raid that you were talking about that Jeff Fiskin... Um... Uh, Jeff Fiskin, that was the raid where he escorted uh, we were halfway back to the base and uh, Jeff came along and uh, wag waggled his wings and, and flew around and escorted us back, yeah. Mm. Mm. Just by himself? Yes, he was a buffalo fighter. Mm. I didn't know there were Hudsons out there, but a Hudson went across in front of me. There's a Hudson, Hudson's also out there. I don't know whether he got shot down. Mm. They must have been an Australian one, I think. They, they were. The, the, the Australian squadrons had Hudsons, I think, at a place called Tenga. Tenga. T-E-N-G-A-H, Tenga. Mm. Okay. Right at the very end, when uh, we had to get away from Salida because the shells were coming across from the mainland, we found two albacores. George Pick found two albacores and... Uh, we flew down to Java in an albacore with our crew. Uh, and from then on, I used the albacore on operations in Java. Uh, uh, successfully bombed the, the Japanese invasion in Java. Mm. Okay. And, right. and I also bombed a cruiser. Mm. Dropped my bombs on a cruiser. Right. And it was strange because um, just before uh, I did that, I went into cloud over a mountain and got into terrible difficulties. I had a beautiful instrument panel in the albacore and I thought I could fly on my instruments. But um, you have to, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I found I couldn't. I ended up diving and uh, stalled the aircraft with a bomb load on and a bloke in the back. Pilot officer Doug Cummings in the back. And I was spinning down and luckily I'd learned how to get out of my spin in New Plymouth. Um, I, gave, I centralised my stick opposite rudder and I flew down the valley and out to sea. And we sighted a cruiser, it looked a beautiful sight. We were at about 3,000 feet above, a, above the cloud and we could see this cruiser. And I, Doug ensured me, he was an Australian observer, he, he ensured me that it was a Japanese cruiser. I don't know how they tell them, because when you're up in the air and you're looking at a cruiser, uh, there's no way of telling really what it, who, who it belongs to. So we, I dived bombed, I, I, I dived down and bombed that and got a strike on it, but we had small Dutch bombs and didn't do a great deal of damage, I don't think. But we went back to base then, and by that time they'd sighted the Japs landing at a place called Rambang, not far from there. We bombed up and went out and we just dropped a single bomb on, on the Japs and their barges as they were coming in. We had a very, the squadron had a very successful night that night uh, bombing the Japs. But we lost our CO. We'd been flying such a long time, he fell asleep coming back and uh, lost his life, the CO. Uh, one wildebeest landed in a paddy field, he couldn't find the aerodrome. 
and we lost one out at sea, but the crew got in the dinghy and came ashore. Well, we ended up with very few aircraft after that raid. Mm. Where were you based there? Based? Well, we had no base really. We, uh, we flew from a secular aerodrome just south of Batavia down to um, um, Rambang where the Japs were landing. They had a very big air base inland from there called Maduan. And uh, uh, we, we operated from Maduan there. And then uh, that was our last bombing raid. And then we went back to... Uh, uh, my, my aircraft got stuck. Uh, and I also ran out of cartridges. You started the Abercor with a cartridge. There was a ring of cartridges, about six cartridges, and you pressed a button and then the cartridge went and started the engine. A very powerful, quiet engine. It, it was a sleeve valve engine and uh, a very quiet engine, but very powerful with a variable pitch, variable pitch propeller. Um, so me and the... Uh, the crew hopped into a wildebeest. The wildebeest was full of chaps, and they, they flew off. We flew off to Bandong, a place called Bandong, uh, up in the mountains, and and we just waited there until we we're taken prisoner of war. Hmm. I was actually picked to go out. The last two wildebeest that were uh, serviceable decided to fly up the coast of Sumatra. If they sighted the sampang, they'd land alongside the sampang, commandeer it, and sail up to India. Uh, but um, an English chap came to me and said, do you mind if I take your place? My wife's in India, and uh, I'd like to, to go with them. And I said, yeah, you can take my place. Well, he went out on a wildebeest that ran out, the two of them, the first one ran out of petrol on the coast, landed out at sea and they were all drowned except the bloke that took my place. And he, he, uh, he managed to get ashore. The second one landed nearer the beach and they were all taken prisoner of war. So they all ended up prisoner of war. Uh, but I was very lucky that I got out of that one. Um, and then we, we just stayed there and we ended up, uh, um, we had to get rid of our log books and revolvers and anything we had and we just ended up with taking prisoner of war. And I ended up being a Japanese prisoner of war for the rest of the time, over a thousand days. And I ended up in Sumatra on the railway of death, working in Sumatra on the railway. Uh, a lot of people never heard of the railway in Sumatra because it wasn't a very large contingent of men. But we dropped heavy rail right through, a hundred miles of heavy rail, right through the jungle of Sumatra and coupled up with a, a, another railhead that went over to the south coast. We finished it just before the, the war ended. Well, we, it was, um, we were just told by our officers what to do. We were in a tea plantation at a place called Garut, and um, we just had to stay there and wait there, and uh, we hadn't seen a Jap at this stage, uh, and then we got onto, uh, they put us on trucks and we went to um, a prison camp where we first saw the Japs there, a place called Makasura, just out of Batavia. Uh, Makasura prison camp was our first camp. Hmm. And, and were you all interrogated and...? Uh... Uh, not, no, we weren't, no, no, we weren't all interrogated. 
No, no, there were so many of us, uh, really. Uh, there were quite a number of uh, uh, British prisoners of war and Dutch, a handful of Americans, a lot of Australians. See, the Australian troops were in Malay, a lot of Australians. I was with the Aussies in, in the, on the railway. Hmm. There was only three New Zealanders. No, I'm sorry, there was, uh, there was about six. There were three off a, a little gunboat called the Grasshopper. Uh, three naval blokes. Mm. Mm. So six New Zealanders? About six New Zealanders on the railway in Sumatra, yeah. Mm. Uh, so, um, who were the other New Zealanders? Do you remember their names? Uh, oh, well, there was Claude Thompson, who was ex uh, uh, 100 Squadron. He lived at Walkworth, he's, he's passed away. And then there was, uh, off the Grasshopper, there was Laurie Herndale that I got very friendly with. Uh, he lived in Christchurch, he's since passed away. And there was one, one from Palmerston North that I met, but I, I don't know much, much about. Hmm. Claude Thompson wrote a book, didn't he? Yes. Yeah. It's just a, yeah. yeah, I've got a copy of that. Mm. Uh, and so what was the camp like itself? Was it oh, the camps were terrible. I, I've had everything that's going. I've had dysentery, um, wet beriberi, dry beriberi, um, ulcers, big ulcers on my foot, uh, dysentery. Dystery was the worst. Uh, with dysentery, you got that weak. You couldn't, if it was raining, you got stuck in the mud and people would have to help you out of the mud. Uh, uh, you can imagine we were living in thatched huts. Uh, there was no um, um, no decent places where we were living. They were all that, you know, living and sleeping on bamboo slats. And underneath was riddled with cockroaches, and there was bed bugs. And the worst thing were lice. We had to get rid of our clothing because lice got in, around and our clothing and used to bite us. So we ended up we just wore loincloths just like a tea towel with a string on the top. That's all we had. Mm. We'd jump into a river if we ever came to a river and washed ourselves, washed the G-string and wrung it out and put it back on again. Mm. And what about the food? Food was terrible. That's, that was our trouble. We all suffered from malnutrition, everybody. Mm. The, the, the rice was like wallpaper paste. We called it pap. Um, it was terrible stuff, really, and there was no meat or vegetables. I used to, when I was out in the jungle, I'd sometimes pluck fern tops, very tender fern tops, and take them back and and uh, eat those. We'd eat anything we could out of the jungle, um, but we didn't get much, really. Mm. And you are expected to work quite hard as well? Oh, yes, I was mainly a front spiker. When we were dropping rails, I was a front spiker, because I could hit the spike fairly accurately and I didn't realise that my Aussie cobber next door to me, Bert Clay, was a champion golfer in, in, in Melbourne and, and he, he could hit a spike very well too. And we were picked out as front spikers because we could hit the spikes in pretty quickly and truly because they were waiting for us. When, when, six, when, when um, the spikes went in at each end of the rail in the middle, They'd push the rails along, 
and the back spikers would end up back, uh, spiking the rest of the sleepers. But we had to be quick because they were waiting to push the rails ahead. Hmm. But I guess there was a team that was cutting the jungle out and flattening it out. And uh, that was all cut out when we, we didn't have to do any jungle work cutting trees or anything. And the sleepers were all cut out of timber stacked on the side of the jungles. And you had to watch when you were getting those that you weren't bitten by a scorpion. There were lots of scorpions there. Hmm. So were the Japanese getting the natives to do all that jungle? No, there was no natives helping us at all. It was all uh, uh, British-American and Australian prisoners of war. Hmm. And Dutch. There were a few Dutchmen. So how many prisoners actually worked on the railway? Was it the whole camp had to do it, or was there just a certain amount of you guys? Uh, well, footmen, they, uh, at the end they had a job getting enough to work because there were a lot of, they were so sick. Um, but there would be, oh, be about 500 men go out on the, on the work party. Hmm. Hmm. Amazing. We had to prepare the track. Uh, uh, we had to lay the sleepers, carry the sleepers out of the jungle and, and drop them along and then uh, they, they're all, um, then, they're, then they drop the rails on them. Hmm. Did it seem quite uh, hopeless to you? Did you think that you'll be doing that for the rest of your life? Oh, not really. No, we didn't think we were going to do it for the rest of our lives. We, we knew at some stage the war would end. Uh, when we didn't know, of course, we didn't know, of course, when it would be. But um, when it ended on the fifteenth of August, nineteen forty-four, I think it was, yeah, forty-four, forty-five. Um, the Japs just quietly departed. We were told by our senior officer uh, to just lay quiet and do nothing, because they were through an awkward stage, and the. Japanese just left quietly on the trucks and went up into the jungle. I don't know where they ended up. Mm. And the first person we sighted back at base camp was Lady Mountbatten. Lady Mountbatten arrived. She, there was an aerodrome not far from where, not just, it was like a large paddock, but a, a DC-3 landed with um, Lady Mountbatten. She, she was the first lady to, to come and see us. And, and she could... She, 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 she saw us as it was. Later on we were given trousers to wear and clothing to wear. Mm. But she was in charge of the Red Cross, wasn't she? Was she? I don't know. She was in charge of the Red Cross. But she, she was a very, very nice person. Very sad how he lost his life. Mm. Mm. So in all that time, there was virtually three years that you were Building the railway, I guess, was it? No, no, no. We weren't three years on the railway. I was in Java and several different camps in Java for a while. I can't remember how, what date we went to. Uh, we weren't actually going to the rail. We were heading for China, for Japan. But I was very, very lucky. I was on a draft I wanted to go on called the Attic Draft from a place called Cycle Camp uh, in Java. And uh, I was on parade and I got dangy fever and collapsed. And I wanted, really wanted to go on the drive because they had a nice chap in charge and all my cobbers and the squadron were going. But they went off and they were sunk by American submarine and there were very few survivors. 
very few survivors. Um, and I stayed behind then and I, I, I was there right to almost to the end until they took us on a, uh, put us on a boat and we were heading for Japan. But a draft that was going from Singapore over to Sumatra to build the railway was sunk. So we took its place. Uh, they, they sent us over up the Siak River and, 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 and to a place called Pakambaru, which is now a very big oil installation. Coltics have a very big oil installation at Pakambaru. Um, uh, and that's where we ended up. Mm. Did you see a lot of, um, or was there a lot of brutality from the guards? Oh yes, they were brutal, brutal chaps really terrible blokes. We, we had nicknames for them. But, um, they'd beat you up for the slightest little thing, you know, mm. with a stick. And did you personally get beaten yourself? Yes, I, they broke a bone in my knee at one stage and when I came back uh, in Wellington I had it operated on and the doctor fixed it up for me, but uh, they were brutal blokes, terrible blokes. Different to the Japs you see here. Uh, they were permanent army chaps, I think, that had been fighting in China uh, for years. They were what you call professional professional soldiers uh, and quite different to the, um, to the Japanese um, individual you see in the street. Mm, terrible blokes. And the Koreans weren't much better. Mm, we had Koreans guarding our, our camp too, a few Koreans guarding the camp. They weren't much better. Um, did, did you have any guards who were a bit more compassionate and... and not really, no, no. There was, oh, only one place early in the piece at Kalajati, there was a sergeant there that was very friendly and used to give us cigarettes. Uh, they'd give us, he used to give us cigarettes, and I, uh, very nice. He was the only nice chap I think I ever met. <laughs> He was a sergeant, he was a very nice chap. Mm -hmm. But that's the only one I th that I ever met that was a nice chap. Mm. But uh, was, um, we never saw any aeroplanes when we were in Sumatra flying over. Never saw any at all. Not one aeroplane while I was a prisoner of war, we never saw one aeroplane. Mm. What about, did you ever get news from the, of the war, like no. with new prisoners coming in? No, you? no news at all. We had no radio sets. They were banned, of course. The Japs, the Japs went through our kits, kits mainly at uh, cycle camp, and they, 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 we weren't allowed paper or pencils or anything. They'd go through and they'd take everything off us. Mm. We were only allowed our clothing and our bedding, that's about all we had, our clothing and bedding. Mm. I was very fortunate I had a sleeping bag off the wildebeest in, in, uh, right through camp life, and it was a godsend for me really because at night time it could get chilly at night, and we had no clothing on, and I used to climb into my sleeping bag. Mm. Was there ever any att attempts to escape? No. If you ever escaped, um, they'd take this, the senior officer out and behead him. And uh, that's one of the worst things. We had to witness a beheading early in the stage 
and it's lived, lived with me for the rest of my life. It's a terrible thing to see a person beheaded. About the worst thing you could ever witness. Mm. Sorry. That's how brutal they were. If 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 anybody escaped from a prison camp, the CO was taken out and beheaded. So it, it was stupid, you know, to escape. Really, there was nowhere to go. Uh, if you did escape, there was nowhere to go. Claude Thompson tried to get away early in the piece uh, in a small boat, but I think they, a wave swamped them and they, they ended up back back ashore again. But there was, there was no way of getting out of Java, really. Out of 16 boats that left uh, before the uh, Japs landed, uh, they were evacuating people from the south of Java. Um, and out of 16 boats that left to go to Australia, 14 were sunk. 14 out of 16 were sunk. Hmm. So an awful lot of lives were lost. Wow. It must have seemed, you said there was no aircraft flying over or anything, it must have almost seemed that you'd all been forgotten. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, um, Colin Gardner, he got on a small boat and they went up to India. They, he ended up in India and working under Mountbatten. Um, he was a pilot in the 100 Squadron. Mm. He was lucky they got through to India, but if he'd gone across to Australia, they could have been sunk. Mm. Mm. It's just remarkable. Yeah. and. Uh, we we had um, those uh, flying boats at Singapore, but the Japs came over one day and sunk about three or four of them. We, we just uh, machine gunned them. They must have damaged the floats and they sunk. And uh, they only ended up with about two. Um, um, oh, what's the name of those flying boats? Is the Catalinas? Catalinas, yeah. Mm. So. Um Did you, you didn't have any contact with the locals, like the Java people? Or no, 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 the, the, the Japs would never allow any natives to come near us, really. No, no. Uh, at a place called Makasura Camp in Java, uh, a, a friend of mine who was uh, an air gunner waved to some Dutch ladies when he went out on a, on a truck to get some vegetables and the Japs saw him, and when they got back to camp, he was very badly beaten up. And the camp, our camp commander, wing commander, Ramsey Ray, went up to, to see what the trouble was, and he got beaten up. Uh, that was a terrible thing. That was at, uh, that was at Makasura camp. But other than that, um, the other camps uh, weren't too bad. No, no, Glottic Jail was a terrible camp. That was a terrible camp, Glottic Jail. Mm. There was no privacy at all there. We, to go to the toilet you just sat, sat over a drain where everybody could see you. There was, there was no privacy whatsoever. 
Mm. How did you guys maintain hope? Hope. I we never. Well, when we were on the railway, we never thought about. We weren't thinking ever ever about when the war would end. I don't think we ever thought about it. We were just trying to keep ourselves alive, really. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but when you look back, I guess that railway after the war has done wonders for the people there. No, no, no. Apparently, um, Claude Thompson went back with his wife and the, the railways have all t been taken up. The rail lines have been taken up and sent back to Java, I think, because they took the lines from Java, uh, from um, but, yeah, Java to Sumatra, and now they've taken them all up and the, the, the place has just gone back to a jungle. Mm. So all, all that effort for nothing. All that effort for nothing. And yet it opened up a line from Pakambaru right across to the south of, south of um, Sumatra. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That's just, um, that's incredible. You'd think they would just get some more lines for Java. Mm. And the, the terrible things happened, of course, too, while we were working there. Uh, they built a wooden bridge across quite a big river, and a flood came and bent the bridge, and they, we had to go out in the middle of the night and, and uh, try and push the logs from under the bridge with sticks. And uh, it was a terrible job to, to what they, we had to do because I wasn't a very good swimmer, and um, and uh, I think one Jap actually fell in and went down the river. But um, it, that was a terrible episode when the when the river bent, when, uh, when the bridge bent. And they had to rebuild it because hmm. that took the train across, the rail across the river. Hmm. Very important bridge. Were there other engineering challenges like that with um... uh, the bridge? Uh... No, not really. No, that that bridge was the major thing. Or the major thing that happened with us, really. Mm. 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 And so, as the railway advanced, your camp kept shifting. Yes, along the, the last camp was Camp Thirteen, and I ended up right at last Camp Thirteen. But the day they, the day they put put the last spike in, I was back at camp with malaria. I had malaria. With malaria, you're sick one day and work the next day. And my cobber, Bert Clay, he had malaria too. And he the next day he had malaria. But we had an alternative days, and he went out and uh, and uh, they coupled up the line. Mm. But the very last day that they coupled it up, I was in camp with the shakes with malaria. Mm. Mm. You keep suffering with malaria, don't no, you? No, no, no. I've lost it now. I was treated in Wellington. Uh, I was treated uh, with malaria uh, for the malaria, and I'd, it gradually worked out in my system. Sometimes, if I was digging in the garden and lower hut, I could feel it coming on, but uh, and I'd stop. But it's completely left me now. I don't have any effects from malaria. Mm. Did you have a lot of? Um problems though after you got home just with the, the stress of it all and the... Yes, we did really. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess of, of all the people who went to war, the, the likes of what you guys went through 
must be really one of the worst possible scenarios. I think it would have been because the Germans weren't like that. Um, you know, if, if a man was injured in a German camp, the Germans used to treat them and and fix them up. But uh, there was nothing like that. Nothing like that. We we were lucky. We had a doctor at Makasura camp um, uh, that treated the Japs, and the, and and we we had a fairly good um, uh, thing there with at Makasura because uh, Weary Dunlop, his name was in Australia, very well known in Australia, Weary Dunlop. He uh, used to, I think, treat the Japs with venereal diseases and they looked upon him as, uh, as uh, uh, like a, a god for them because there was no treatment for that there. He took a, he, he took a, uh, um, um, he took a, a shipment of men up to the big railway and up up in um, where did they go? That other railway. There was another big railway, um, and the River Kwai. Yeah, well, we already done up. Took a ten there. I was on the, I was on the tail end of that, but I was knocked off at the end. I wanted to go on it. We had a lot of air crew with us on that, but I was knocked off that one, left behind. Mm. That was where he'd done up, a very fine gentleman. What did you guys do when you weren't working and you were just in the camp? Did you all chat about stuff and uh, to keep morale up? Or? Uh, well, you weren't in camp uh, in, in, in Sumatra. Where you only came back at night time, you slept in the camp, in the daytime you're out at work again. You weren't, you weren't, there was no holidays. There was no Saturday or Sundays. Every day was a work day. And did you get sort of sick of seeing the same people day in day? No, out? not really. No, no, we never got sick that way. We were only sick with dysentery, uh, beriberi, or, um, uh, or and we had tropical ulcers. Of course, they were terrible. The ulcers, tropical ulcers. Mm. They used to put maggots in them to eat the white pus. We'd cover it with um, uh, a bit of cloth with latex off a rubber tree, and you'd leave it there until you couldn't stand the sand it any longer. And then you took them out and cl they cleaned the ulcer out. That was the only way they could heal them. Mm. I was only recently I was talking to a bloke in Australia, way up north in Cairns, and was, he was an orderly medical orderly, and I said, you probably put ulcers in my, uh, maggots in my ulcer. He was on the, in, in Sumatra, and he said, no, he said, I, I bred them. He said, I bred them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's such an amazing story. Mm. And, you know, just to get through that and come out the other side is so brave. Yeah. Yes, we yes we had uh, uh, the best camp I think I was ever at was uh, cycle camp in Java. They had a notorious Japanese commander there called Sonny, but um, he would only work into a rage if somebody did something silly. Um, uh, for instance, uh, a group of chaps came back from a Haruku and they had a terrible time. Claude Thompson was one of them, and. Uh, he made sure they all, all were, 
uh, there was a hospital there, and he made sure they were all comfortable in the hospital. But he went over one night and found orderly sleeping in the beds, and all oh, the the riot he caused. He chucked everything around and wrecked the hospital and got the Dutch blokes out and the Dutchmen were sleeping in the hospital beds. Um, he really ran riot, but he had reason to. He had reason to. Mm. Were there certain guards that you knew were the really evil ones or, or they had certain habits and that sort of thing that they got known by? Uh, no, well, the, the guards were all, uh, we, the guards, the guards were, uh, didn't worry us in the camps. They didn't come into the camp. They were at the camp entrance, at, at, at a big camp like Cycle Camp in Java. There might have been about 30 guards all sitting on a seat at the guardhouse. Um, but, um... You never got into trouble unless you did something wrong, like you weren't allowed to smoke without an ashtray at, at, at um, um, cycle camp. If they caught you smoking without an ashtray, you got beaten up. Well, I can understand that. Um, so you made sure you had an ashtray alongside you when you were smoking, because they were very, they were very fearful of a fire. I don't know why, but they're very fearful of a fire. Hmm. I'm surprised that you have cigarettes. Uh, in the early stages, we had cigarettes. Yeah, you could. We had cigarettes, and, uh, and later, oh, and, and even on the railway, we used to. Uh, I had a, a very good uniform, and I sold it. Uh, the the Ambonese used to go out at night and and contact the natives, and you'd give anything you wanted to sell to the Ambonese, and they'd sell it for you, and I got it quite a good price for the suit, uh, an army khaki suit I had, and uh, I had quite a bit of money there. I shared it with my friend, um, um, Corporal, um, uh, that I used to be spike with, and uh, we used to be able to buy tobacco off the natives uh, called a lampang. It was about a kilo of beautiful fine tobacco we go back and make little piles of it and sell it to our, not make a profit, but just sell it to the blokes to, to let them have a smoke. Hmm. Recover our money and then uh, it was enabled us to buy some more if we, when we ever came across it and out in the jungle. Hmm. But we had a job getting paper to roll our cigarettes in the end. Hmm. That was a problem, getting paper to roll a cigarette. Where would you get the paper from? Uh, well, in the end we used, used a, a leaf of a, a, leaf, a leaf of a thing out of the jungle that natives used to use. They used to roll that around. Mm. When you were finally liberated, the Japs went and, and you um, were suddenly free again, what was the first thing you did? Was it did you really want to go and have a specific meal or a good bath or...? Uh, well, I, we went back to base camp. Uh, no, we were able to keep clean with our bodies through getting in the river and, uh, and, and, and we had water there, but... Um, uh, no, when I went back to base camp, I, I had money with me and I bought a big fish and we cooked the fish and uh, ate that. 
but uh, we were dying for fish, fish I think mainly. When I got back to Auckland I, I stayed with my auntie up there and she asked me what I and I said oh, I'd love a fish <laughs> and, I, and I couldn't eat, seem to eat enough fish. Mm, I still like fish. Yeah. Mm. How, how long was it before you came back home after, you, after the end of the war? Did they get you straight back to New Zealand? Or? Uh, well, we went from Sumatra in a DC-3 they flew to an Australian hospital in Singapore but I got better quite quick there with good food they gave us mainly soup and uh, I was probably about two weeks and then they, then they I was flown back here mm. uh, in a DC-3 mm. went to Auckland in a hospital in Auckland and they wouldn't let me out of there until I'd put on a bit of weight. Mm. Did you find it really hard to adjust back to sort of city life after after that? It was a bit difficult, yes. Yes, it was a bit difficult. Mm. Mm. I guess the place had changed a fair bit too in four years. Uh, yes, it had probably with motor cars and that, because before the war I had a little Austin 7. A uh, little wee Austin 7. Uh, that was my first motor car. Um, but um, uh, after the war there were more modern cars and it was, uh, yes, it was a lot different coming out of prison camp after being in prison camp for over a thousand days. Hmm. Did you join up with the Prisoner of War Association? Yes, yes, yeah. Hmm. Were there many who had survived the being a prisoner of the Japanese or were you a, a bit of a, a novelty within that. Oh no, there were quite, there was Laurie Hearn, no, there were quite a few of us here, a, a lot of Australians. There was only um, about half a dozen New Zealanders, about three off the grasshopper, Claude Thompson, a school teacher, civilian school teacher from Malaya, I can't think of his name, uh, and me. Uh, there was only about six of us on the railway in Sumatra. Hmm. Were there many more around other parts of Asia that were like Kiwis under the Japanese prison camps or? Uh, Kiwis. Uh, yes there would have been a few, uh, officers as well, yes there would have been a few. Uh, the officers were kept separate from the from the uh, ordinary sergeants or ordinary private people. Hmm. We weren't allowed to in one camp we weren't allowed to talk to the officers because my observer, Doug Cummings, was a pilot officer and wanted to help us with a bit of sugar or anything like that at Makasura, but they were told not to do it. We weren't, they weren't allowed to talk to us. Mm. Had he been your observer as a crew all the way through with... Um... Doug Cummings? Yeah. Not all the time, no. I had, in Singapore, I, had, uh, I only had Doug in, in Java. Uh, when we were on our last raid, uh, I had Duncan Java. Um, uh, back in Singapore, I had Sergeant Green and um, Sergeant Johnny Holmes as an air gunner. Mm. And they were British, were they? Australians. Mm. Australians. And you, you said you had to get, when you were taken prisoner, you had to get rid of your logbook. Had, yes, logbook and revolver, yeah. 
So you don't have a logbook anymore? No. It's a, it shame, a shame, really. We, we valued our logbooks. Mm. 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 Now, what happened to the 36th Squadron? What happened to the rest of the guys? Did, did, it, did most of them get killed and, and the squadron Well, end our thinned an awful lot of us out. Um, the, uh, what was left, some of them got away on boats. See, Ryan Baber, for instance, he got back. Um, Colin Gardner ended up in India, working under Mountbatten. Um, I, I, uh, I ended up, I was flying right to the end, and uh, whereas some of those others were able to get on boats and get away, I was with the squadron right to the very finish. Mm. Mm. There was no thought of me getting away, really, at that stage. If, we, if we'd only known at a place at, in Java at Madouin, when we were doing our last bombing raid at Madouin, a flying fortress landed and wanted to take us off to Australia. But the CO wouldn't allow it, uh, and we had to stay there. But looking back now, we should have all hopped on that flying fortress and departed to Australia. Mm. Mm. Amazing. So, just going back to the um, the wildebeest itself, mm. what was it like to fly in combat in a, in a wildebeest? Did you just feel completely unsafe, or or was were you confident with it? Uh, we never felt unsafe at all at any time. We used to mainly do night flying, and the Japs never flew at night. We, we went up Malaya bombing the. Japanese airfields that the Japanese had taken over, but uh, uh, no, I never felt unsafe in the wildebeest, even though it only did about 90 miles an hour. Mm. And was the albacore a bit of a step up from the wildebeest? Oh, absolutely. The albacore would have been the most modern biplane that was ever built. Uh, I think it would, would have been the last of the biplanes. It had a beautiful instrument panel, all we had in our wildebeest was an um, altimeter, airspeed indicator, uh, about three instruments is all we had. But on the albacore it had a beautiful um, instrument panel. And, uh, uh, but with flying, you must be used to using the instruments. You get time lag. And if, you don't, if, if, you, um, if you're not with it all the time, you'll be fighting your instruments like I did and ended up in a spin. Hmm. But the albacore was, the, there was a disadvantage with the albacore in some ways, the, the two crew members were at the back behind the petrol tank and you couldn't speak to them unless you, you spoke through a speaking tube. Uh, but then the wildebeest, of course, they could come forward and speak, but uh, they were quite isolated in the back in the albacore. You're totally enclosed. The wildebeest, you were exposed to the elements flying. All you had was a windscreen in front of you. Hmm. Okay. A very modern aircraft. It had two Browning machine guns, fixed undercarriage, um, but a uh, very modern uh, uh, instrument panel and a very variable pitch propeller. And fairly manoeuvrable? 
Yes, yes, very fairly manoeuvrable. It was really a torpedo bomber off the aircraft carrier. Yeah. Mm. Had the two that you found, you guys found, been left by the fleet air arm? Mm. Yeah, been left by the fleet air arm. Mm. Mm. There were actually quite a few left there behind, but we lost a few at Endow. I think we lost about three Vildebe, uh, three Albacores at Endow. Two COs were in an Albacore each, 36 and 100 squadron. They both got killed. Mm. Mm. George Peck that trained me was an Albacore. He went out at Endow and he went into a spin and the two chaps in the back thought he was shot, so they bailed out. And when George Peck got back, he ended up with no crew in the back. They, they came back by foot, but his aircraft was shot up terribly bad. He had a burn across the back of his neck. A, bullet, a shell had gone into the fuel tank and burst outwards. The whole back of the instrument panel and the, where the observer and air gunner were was completely shot away. Uh, he had bullet holes all over the aircraft and I think both his tires were flat. He landed and just left the aircraft there. It was, it was a complete write-off. Mm. It's still an indictment to it that he got at home, though, I guess. Hey? It's still an indictment to the aircraft that he got at home. Yeah, he so got it home, yeah. Mm. Amazing. It could never fly it again. It was complete write-off. I think his fuel tank, was a cap on the fuel tank was missing too. But the shell had landed in the fuel tank and burst outwards. It's one that didn't catch fire. Mm. Amazing. Mm. Yeah, well... um. And I just wonder if there's any sort of final statement that you'd like to make about your war or your experiences? Uh, well, it's such a long time ago now and I don't think about it really. You know, uh, I don't go along thinking about it all the time. I keep pretty good health. Mm. Mm. Well, I look after myself. Yeah. It's an amazing story and... Um, mm. You know, to me, to someone like me, it's just a privilege to me to hear it like yourself. Mm. Who's, who's been through all that. Thank you very much. Oh, that's very good. Yeah. Cheers. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.